0: lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson.
1: We have got quite a show for you guys today. We've got Paula Manier. She's a senior agent and director of storytelling with Talent Notch Literary. She specializes in commercial fiction and nonfiction, and she represents many wonderful crime writers. She's also the USA Today best-selling author of The Mercy Car Mysteries: A Borrowing of Bones, the first in the series. She was nominated for the Mary Higgins Clark Award and named the Dogwise Book of the Year. It doesn't get any better than that if you're named the Dogwise Book of the Year. (laughs) She's also written Blind Search, and this was inspired by the real-life rescue of a little boy with autism who got lost in the the woods. She's got a new book coming out in 2021, The Hiding Place. Can't wait for her to tell us what that's going to be about. But Paula's been inspired To write the series by the hero dogs that she met through Mission Canine Rescue, her own rescue dogs, and a lifelong passion for crime fiction. She's also written three popular books on writing Plot Perfect, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings, and Writing with Quiet Hands, as well as Fixing Freddie and Happier Every Day. So, Paula, thank you so much for being with me today.
0: Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited.
1: And I just have to ask you, I mean, it's it, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you write first, or were you teaching people how to write first?
0: Well, you know, back when I was in, like, the ninth grade, my teacher called my mother and said, your daughter should be a writer. And, of course, I was 14, and when you're 14, you don't want to do anything your mother says you should do. So I resisted that and studied geophysics in college, of all things. But while I was in college, I was broke, and so like all college students. So I decided I would just write for magazines and make some money, having no idea how that actually worked. It doesn't really work that way. So I wrote my first piece for my favorite magazine, which back in the day was Cosmo, Cosmopolitan, back in the heyday of Cosmopolitan. And I wrote this story, and they published it. And I sent it in over the transom. And I just thought, well, how easy is this? This is this is no big deal. Anybody can be a writer. Well, fast forward, you know, several years, and and I find myself, you know, divorced and broke. And I ended up becoming a reporter. And I started off as a reporter. And I always loved books. And even though I was a reporter for several years, and I was an editor for magazines and newspapers, it was when I got my first job at a book publisher that I realized, oh, my goodness, they're going to pay me to sit around And talk about books all day. And that was my first job as an acquisitions editor. Acquisitions editors are the people who acquire books for publishers.
1: So it sounds like you were in heaven. You you had finally got that easy spot for you.
0: It was wonderful. And I enjoyed it. I was an acquisitions editor for nearly 20 years. And I just loved it. I was the midwife, instead of being the the mom, the baby, the author of the books, having the baby, being my baby, I was the midwife, and I got to help a lot of other writers get published, that was my job, to help writers get published, and it's still my job as an agent, but it also um, helped me learn how to teach writers to write, and that's when I started teaching writers to write.
1: I find that really interesting because I wrote a book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On. And the the midwife, that's such an interesting analogy because that really was, you know, I felt like they held my hand. They told me it's gonna be okay. You know, just keep breathing, keep moving forward. And and I did. But looking back, yeah, that's exactly. At the time, I think I was just so moving so fast and furious, I didn't realize how much nurturing actually went into that process.
0: Absolutely. You know, being an, an acquisitions editor or being an agent, which should, I'm an agent now, which means I represent writers' work and help sell it to the editors at publishing houses. And you're half, you know, half therapist, half. Cheerleader, half life coach, half writing teacher, uh, half salesperson. You're all those things put together. And it's it's actually my favorite job so far.
1: Well, which part of that job do you enjoy the most?
0: Well, the best days are the days when I get that call from the editor saying, you know, we love this book, and I get to call the writer. And tell the writer, hey, oh. God, we just sold your book. And it's always fun, but it's especially fun when it's a debut author and it's really their long time dream come true that they're going to get published. So those are the be- very best days in the business. Followed closely by my own book birthdays, when I when I publish my own books, but but it's still a thrill to sell someone's book and to see it come out and be a real, a real baby.
1: Yeah. But you know, your first book, A Borrowing of Bones, that was number one bestseller on the New York Times. That's pretty impressive.
0: Well, it did make the USA Today bestsellers list, which is really great. And it did win the Dogwise Book of the, Year, of the Year award, which I loved because, you know, those are real dog people. That, um, and they're all dog writers. They all write about all kinds of dog articles and books and stories and they're real dog people. So that was a real kick because for me, the, the joy of the books, I get to write about Mercy Carr, who's a retired MP who's wounded in Afghanistan. And I get to read, write about her dog, Elvis, who's a bomb sniffing dog, who also was in Afghanistan. And though between the dogs and the veterans and making a new life for herself and her dog in Vermont, that's the joy of the series, right? That's, I get to write about people I love, inspired by settings I love, the beauty of Vermont, and I get to write about dogs. What, what could be more fun?
1: Well, I agree. We share a love for rescue dogs. My last four dogs have been rescue dogs, and you know, each one has been special, but each one I feel like has loved me more than other dogs. It's like, you're my they just there's a special connection Operation Kindness is an operation that I've supported very strongly for the last few years we're going to have our big virtual event in November and that's okay you know it won't be the same I won't get to see those little dogs running around and I won't get to be saying to my husband if that one doesn't go I'm taking him home with me which is always not a pleasant time but usually that one goes But dogs can be very inspiring. I I I share that with you.
0: Yes. Well, we have right now we have three rescue dogs and a rescue cat, and my husband says we're full up now because we just (laughs) we rescued a Malinois mix uh, named Blondie, who's very much like Elvis in the Mercy Card books—a Malinois, you know, Belgian Shepherd working comes from a long line of working dogs, and a lot of military working dogs are Malinois and. And so, we have Blondie, and then we have a Newfoundland retriever mix named Bear, and we have a Great Pyrenees Australian cattle dog mix named Bliss, and then we have the cat, Ursula the cat, I call her, who's, you know, nine pounds of trouble and uh, terrorizes the 80-pound dogs.
1: Oh, I'm sure she rocks the house. Yeah. So, do I hear, is, is this new book coming out in March? Does that have anything to do with any of those? Were they inspired by any of those rescue dogs?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, certainly Bear, um, in the books, it's Mercy Carr is the female vet home from Afghanistan, and Elvis, former military working dog, they team up with the local game warden and his search and rescue dog, who's a Newfoundland retriever mix named Susie Bear, very much inspired by Bear. And, of course, now I ha- we have Blondie, who, who's, you know, basically Elvis in a female form. And we have Bliss who, in Blind Search, as you, as you noted earlier, it's a, it's a story about a little boy with autism who gets lost in the woods and witnesses a murder, And then Mercy and Elvis have to team up with Troy and Susie Bear to find a little boy and catch the murderer and keep him safe. And what was so interesting, I loved doing this book because I love Henry, the little boy who, you know, I raised two sons myself and we have lots of friends and family on the spectrum. So it was lovely to write about Henry. And I found out in my research, what's cool about these books is I get to find out about all the wonderful things that dogs do for people. And one of the wonderful things dogs do is they're service dogs for kids with autism, to keep them from wandering off into the woods. And Bliss, our Great Pyrenees Australian Catalog, is the inspiration for the service dog for Henry in the book.
1: Well, you know, that autistic population is one that I work with at the Brain Performance Center a a fair amount, and it is, you know, that lack of social cueing that a lot of them have. And I, I could imagine a dog could be so helpful because just to when a dog looks at you or when the dog stops, then the child knows to stop. Exactly. And it's so much easier than having someone say, Lee, you know, stop. Um, and right. so much less invasive.
0: Well, I found out. So
1: this was a true story, right?
0: Well, it was inspired by the true story of a little boy with autism who was lost in the woods in Vermont, setting where my books take place. And he was found safe and sound, I'm happy to say, by search and rescue personnel, including canine, search and and rescue personnel. what's interesting about it is, you know, you think, okay, who gets lost in the woods? Hunters, hikers. But honestly, in my research, I found that the people most likely to get lost in the woods are kids with autism and the elderly people with dementia. And they don't respond to calls, right? It, it, they hide. They get scared and they hide. So it's hard for human rescuers to find them. But the dogs can sniff them out wherever they're hiding.
1: Well, and the dogs are so non-threatening. I mean, if I was lost in the woods and I saw a dog come at me, I would just want to run up and hug that dog and say, sit with me. Keep me warm. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And, you know, that's part of what happens in the book is that the dogs, the dogs are able to coax Henry to safety before Mercy and and Troy can.
1: Well, those those I can't wait to read them all. I've skimmed them all, but I, I can't wait to read them all because knowing now too that how they originated and they stem from real rescue dogs, that just makes my heart sing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's funny because people always ask me about the dogs and i and I always laugh because you know if you have dogs or cats or any kind of animals, you know that they have such distinct personalities from one to the other. they're very different creatures, even when they're the same breed, even when they're from the same litter so that's what's fun is to is is to People say, do you make this up? I said, I don't have to make it up. I just have to pay attention to my dogs, you
1: know. No, I agree. I had my two rescue dogs right now. I have Barnaby, and he is a French bulldog pug mix. And then I have Mr. B, and he is a pug terrier mix. And I couldn't make up the stuff that they do. (laughs) I'm not that creative. Just watching them, you know, chase each other around the house or watching them. They sense when the other one needs something or it's incredible. It it truly is incredible. And I can tell that you're very observant, that you must tap into that very well.
0: Well, yes. And I I just love the dogs. And, you know, certainly, you know, now of of all times, they're such a comfort and, you know, you walk them and you play with them. And, and they're really a comfort and a distraction from, from, you know, what's going on in the world. And when you're feeling bad, there's nothing better than a cat in your lap or a dog at your feet.
1: I totally agree. And one of the best things that I think has come out of the COVID-19 is the shelters are being emptied. The mm-hmm. dogs that are in shelters are finding homes. That I'm always looking for the good. Um, and so, so to me that there is some goodness in what we've been through the last months.
0: Yes. And another plus is that people have rediscovered their love of reading, which is good for writers and and for readers, too, because re- reading is is a particular kind of escape and a particular kind of distraction and comfort to people that a lot of people, you know, they they didn't have time to read before and now they're learning And loving reading again.
1: And I think you bring up a really good point. And and I guess I'm an old fuddy dud because I know everybody does the audibles and the Kindles and all that. But I've got to have the book in my hands.
0: Oh, yes. Everybody loves a, a good book in their hands. And, you know, it's funny. A lot of people have told me that they're suffering anxiety now so that they can't focus on a on a book in their hands or even on their Kindle. So they're listening to Audible, you know, to 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 novels and stories and books, you know, on audio because they don't it, somehow it's easier for them. So even if you find it difficult to read on the page, you can listen.
1: Well you know in that auditory processing, I think it's easier to go in and out With auditory processing than it is visual processing, working with the brain, I mean, to me, auditory processing, that's the temporal lobes, visual processing, that's the occipital lobes. But even if you hear 80% of it, you can follow along and you can guess. But with reading, you know, you can't miss 20% of it and really be able to comprehend and say, this is what, this is how I answer the question.
0: Right. I mean, I don't usually listen to many books on on audio. I used to when I commuted and spent a lot of time in the car, I would listen to my favorite writers. And it was great because not only could I listen to a story, but it would automatically put the kids to sleep. Something about the <laughs> the rhythm of the narrator's voice would put them to sleep immediately. But now I can't. I can't. My husband listens to my book on audio, but I just can't because I would hear every mistake <laughs> and I would hear everywhere I wanted to rewrite. So I don't listen on audio
1: so you you critique yourself as a writer and while at the same time that you write those books
0: it never ends i mean i was an editor for a long time i'm still an editor i still edit myself and i still get edited i think a lot of writers think oh we get published and that you know, i'll never be edited again it doesn't work that way at all what i tell my clients is if you get a, a you know you're if you're traditionally published what you get in effect is a master's class in writing and publishing on the publisher's dime because you I have a brilliant editor and he you know, they save you a time and time again. Everyone needs a fresh set of eyes. Everyone needs that. And, you know, if you're smart, you embrace that revision process because it's what saves you in the end.
1: Oh, and said, you know, what another perspective can bring and just how somebody else looks at something. You know, to me, that's blue. Well, to me, that's green. Okay, so maybe that person in the middle, it's turquoise. But let's figure that out. And that's why, you know, so the more and more people that can relate to it and understand it, the better it is for everybody.
0: Well, absolutely. And, you know, once someone once said that, Writing was the most difficult of the arts because it didn't appeal directly to a sense like music, you know, appeals to hearing and and visual arts appear to your sight. Because what is writing? It's just it's just little black marks on white paper that are basically symbols that I write down, meaning one thing, and then it has to be translated into the reader's brain. And you hope that those symbols mean the same thing to them. So it's kind of a magical process, really.
1: Well, I think it is. And, you know, it's interesting because I've got clients that, well, I've got one client that wants to write a book, and but she, she has told me, I can't get it out of my head. I know it in my head. I know what I want to say, but I cannot put it down on paper. You know, how do you explain that, Lee? And I'm like, well, I think that may be, um, you, you know, that may be a coherence issue how the brain shares information because the truth of the matter is is that that's a good question you know is it is it an interference of putting it on paper or is it that transformation that has to ha- happen in the brain and that is actually a coherence issue but it's to me writing is a gift and somebody at 19 i was a Cosmo girl in those college days too. And to be published in Cosmo, oh my gosh. I mean, at that point in time, that was the end all.
0: Well, it was a big thrill, that's for sure. And it really gave me such confidence, undeserved really, (laughs) but it was confidence that that served me well over the course of my career because I always figured you know, if Cosmo would publish me, I, I should be okay in the long run. And it gave me because I had, it's like beginner's luck, right? You have beginner's luck, and then that, that, that helps you endure the bad times and persist during the bad times.
1: Well, you know, and you bring up the bad times. And, Lord, this 2020 has been a challenging year for everybody. And 2020 has had some unusual struggles and some things that we've never thought about or dealt with. And I think that when times get bad, it's when we feel the need to express ourselves. And some people do that verbally. Some people, but some people do do that in a written way. Are you seeing more people starting to write now? Are you seeing any change in that?
0: Absolutely. Well, first of all, a lot of people have more time. They're not commuting, they're at home, you know. Um, So they have more time, so they're finally writing that novel they always wanted to write. They're finally putting down on paper their memories for their memoir. They're they're finally getting to it. And there's also, I think, an element of, if not now, when, right? Now's the time. And so I think a lot of people are turning to writing as a release, as an escape, but also as a way of processing what's going on. I just did a a column for careerauthors.com which is a website I'm part of, and it was about, I called it, you know, Oh, the Places You'll Go, because right now
1: we can't. I love that book. I love that Dr. Seuss book. It's a fabulous
0: book, And, and, and it reminded me that, you know, my daughter and my granddaughters live in Europe, and I haven't seen them now for over a year, and I don't know when I'll get to see them, and it just, it just, breaks my heart. I miss them so much. And sure, I Zoom, but it's not the same. So I started a novel set in Europe. And I can populate it with all my favorite people. I I can visit the places I miss so much now and the people I miss so much now. And writing gives you an opportunity to do that, to escape your real life circumstances. Circumstances. And, and so
1: if somebody you know wanted to write you've got 3 books you've got plot perfect building unforgettable stories scene by scene you've got the writer's guide to beginnings how to craft story openings that sell and you've got writing with quiet hands how to shape your writing to resonate with readers which book should they pick up first
0: okay well if you're if you're Just getting started and you're having trouble coming up with a story with a beginning and a middle and an end, which is what you need if you're writing a novel, if you're writing fiction, and even if you're writing a memoir, I would say Plot Perfect is the book for you. It shows you how to write a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you've got that already and you're trying to get people to read it and you don't get a great response – then you really need the Writer's Guide to Beginnings because most people, especially people in the industry, agents and editors, don't read past the beginning if it doesn't capture their attention. So the beginning is really important. So if you're having trouble getting off the ground in your writing career and you've already got a manuscript finished, then I would get the Writer's Guide to Beginnings so you you can learn how to capture the reader's attention and keep it. And then if you've been writing a while, and you're looking for a book about the finer points of writing, I would say writing with quiet hands. I wrote that book for all the people who are this close to getting published, but, but somehow are doing something that unwittingly they're sabotaging themselves. And I wrote the book for those writers who are, who are getting there, but just need to learn the final sort of polishing aspects of, of writing to get
1: sold. So it sounds like almost there's a little dance that you know you gotta do, you gotta dance just right. And it cause it's an art. Writing's an art, dance is an art, but you've gotta just get everything put together in the right way. And to me, that's the hard part, for sure. I have great ideas. You know, I was thinking I'm gonna write a second book, and I've got all these great ideas. But what do those ideas translate into? Well, <laughs> that's
0: a good question. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing, right? You need a great idea, but then you need to fulfill the promise of that great idea in the book itself. And that's a tall order. It's not easy to get published. I mean, it's it's not easy to be a good writer. It's not easy to take. Well, first of all, it's not easy to come up with a great idea, and then it's not easy to execute that idea in a, in an engaging, insightful way. But I, I have every confidence you can do it. I'm glad to help.
1: Well, Thank you, and you may be hearing from me. Because, <laughs> you know, and I think that one of the things, when I wrote Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, I wrote that because Really, I wanted people to know it is okay not to be okay. i People come in and the first step is I do a thirty minute consultation and when I say, "Gee, sounds like you're a little depressed I'll see the eyes go to the floor, or if I say, "Gee, sounds like you're a little nervous I'll see the shoulders become earrings. you know, and it hit me. People don't think it's okay to have mental health issues. And so, in the next book, you know, I thought, well, maybe all right, it's okay to not be okay, but but whatever. I think where your passion is for me, it certainly is the mental health piece of it and the brain. Uh, but whatever your passion is, if I feel like if I can tap into that, then I can be compelling. You know, we've got a couple of minutes left before break. What do you have to say about tapping into that passion?:
0: Well, I think it's critical. you know they always say, "Write what you know," and I always say, "Well, yeah, write what you know, write what you love, and write what you'd love to know." And now that we're all stuck at home, I say, and write where you'd love to go." <laughs> I think those are all fun things you know that if it's not fun, if it's not compelling, if it's not engaging, if it doesn't get you all worked up. If your own writing doesn't get you all worked up and excited, then you're not going to be able to excite a reader. So you have to follow your passion, and honestly, that's what the arts are for—you know, finding a way to express our passion and find meaning in that passion.
1: Well, you know, when you think about writing, how long has that been in existence? Forever. Before, before we celebrated dance or music. People were writing.
0: Sure. Storytelling, sitting around the campfire, telling stories. Storytelling is, is endemic. It, it, it is the human condition, right? And it's our way of teaching our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, what we've learned during this life. And a lot of that's what we learned when, from our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. It's this oral storytelling yeah. tradition written down. That's what writing really is.
1: That's a great way to describe it. We're going to take a break, and when we when we come back from break, I'm going to switch a little bit on you, because I really want to know more about happier every day. I think, you know, I saw a study that in 2020, 83% of the people feel like the nation is the most unsecure that it's been in history. And, you know, I think it's stressful, and we all need to tap into how we can be happier every day. And that is one book I did read.
0: We'll be back after these messages.
1: Close your eyes and imagine living your life without limits. Where would you go? Who would you meet? What would you do? During an Uncover Your Hidden Genius session, you will discover what's keeping you from living your life with purpose, passion, and fulfillment of your potential. You'll get a clear vision of the steps you need to take to uncover your hidden genius so that you can live a life without limits. Sessions can be done over the phone, Skype, or in person. Find out more at
0: www.JoyceBufordEmpowers.com or by calling
1: 903-287-0747.
0: television in America is turning 75 this year. Visitors to the World's Fair in New York in 1939 were amazed to see moving pictures and hear sound coming from a small black and white screen built into a large wooden box. The invention of television, named after Latin and Greek words meaning far sight, dates even further back. Patented in Germany in 1884, TV sets were sold commercially in several countries beginning in 1928. The German word for TV is Fernsehen. Xena introduced the Lazy Bones Remote Control in 1951 Giving birth to Generations of couch potatoes In Britain, another word for the Television remote is the Snibbly Bibbly I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun Challenging your words you never heard vocabulary With my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back Here's your host, Lee Richardson.
1: Back, and I've got Paula Meunier with me, and we're going to talk about a book that she wrote, Happier Every Day. And the reason all of her books are fabulous. But we both want to talk about that book because we both sense the level of stress in the world, and our local communities, and our families. I saw a statistic that in 2020, 83% of the population that were surveyed felt like the nation is at an all-time low. Stress is at an all-time high. And, you know, how stressed out are you? I want the people that are out there listening right now to stop. And ask yourself that question, how stressed out are you? Do you need to think about how you can be happier every day? So, Paula, what inspired you to write the book?
0: Well, you know, I wrote the book before all this, but I was inspired because, as you know, certainly as a therapist, you know, um, when when we came up with all these uh, drugs for clinical depression, the idea was that, oh, this will be great. Everybody will be happy now. But That's really not what happened. What happened was that fewer people were clinically depressed, but people weren't really necessarily happy. And certainly people aren't happy now. I, I think it's such a difficult time for everyone. And so when I wrote the book, I was writing it for normal times when people are unhappy because I, I know a lot of unhappy people. And and hap- I think I have a kind of a gift for happiness. And I And I had to sit down and analyze, you know, why am I happier than most people? You know, is it because I've been blessed? Well, yes, of course. But it's also because I, I there's a resiliency, right? And I think resiliency is part of it. And they've done all these studies. Um, my daughter happens to live in Switzerland, which many studies will tell you are the happiest place on earth, you know, um, for, for a number of different reasons. But happiness is something that you kind of have to decide to be happy if, you know, if you don't have any other underlying issues, it's a choice you make. It's a perspective. It's, it's a gift to yourself to be good to yourself. And I think a lot of people don't give themselves that gift. So their capacity for happiness is diminished and especially diminished in bad times.
1: Well, but I think you hit it on the head. Happiness is a choice. You know, growing up, I can remember my mom saying, honey, you can reach in that drawer And you can pull out happy, or you can reach in that drawer, and you can pull out sad. You know, what are you going to pull out? Because that's pretty simple and basic, but that's about what it gets down to.
0: It it is. It is. And, And, you know, also, I think, you know, you have to choose to be happy, and then you have to do the things that make you happier, you know. And they're little things, but they add up. Little things add up, um, and it's, it's it can be as simple as getting a dog or a cat and rescuing an animal and taking that dog for a walk every day. That will make you happier. It's it's as simple as going to yoga class, even when or Zoom yoga now, even when you know your family is pulling at you and, and you feel like you don't have the time. That's forty five minutes you give yourself and your brain and your body to rest. It can be as simple as getting a good night's sleep. You know, it's hard to be happy when you're exhausted. And so many people are exhausted. And I'm glad to see that. I think this is changing. You can you can tell us if it's changing or not. You know, for a long time, people prided themselves on not getting any sleep. Oh, I only sleep four hours a night. I can get along on three hours a night. That's not good for your brain or your body or your mental health. We need to sleep. Sleep is great. And I think that's changing a little bit now that people are at home maybe sleeping more and they're feeling at least physically better because they've actually gotten some sleep. But you really need to sleep. So all these little things you can do
1: can really make a difference in your happiness quotient. Well, I think you're right. It's, you know, this is what I find so interesting. It's, there's not one thing that you can do to get happy. And they're all small things. You know, I'm going to name three things that I'm grateful for at the end of the day. I'm going to stop, and I'm going to take some me time. And maybe that for some people, that's prayer. For some people, that's music. For me, it's walking the dog. But not one thing is a game changer. It's you've got to commit to doing several things that make you happy. And some people... I find in my clinic, are afraid to be happy. They don't think that they deserve it. And I think everybody deserves to be happy.
0: Absolutely, everyone deserves to be happy. And they and you're absolutely right that you have to first acknowledge that you deserve to be happy. We all deserve to be happy. There's no reason why we can't make ourselves happy. And ultimately, it comes down to that, you know, um, that you decide, okay, I'm going to be happy. Regardless of what's going on around you, and the unhappy people around you, you know, you don't have to be one of those unhappy people. You can make the choices. And there are little choices every single day. Do I go to bed on time and get a good night's sleep? Do I take the dog for a walk? Do I take 20 minutes out to meditate? Do I take a Saturday afternoon and build myself a vision board? Do I take, you know, a day off and go hiking? These are these are small decisions, but they make a huge difference in in how you feel about yourself and your life.
1: They really do. And I think, you know, one of the things that I tell people is you need to become self-aware. You need to pay attention. You know, how strained do you feel every day? As I check in with myself, hey Lee, how's it going? You're sounding a little grumpy today, Lee. But but you've got to do that check in, you know. And a lot of times when we're all stressed out, we feel like that we're very inadequate. Is there anything in the book for someone that's feeling strained and totally inadequate? Is there anything in the book that that you would refer to?
0: Well, I can tell you when when I started feeling bad I started I sort of fell into an ennui, which I think a lot of us have fallen into during this time because I couldn't see my granddaughters I couldn't see my daughters cut off from family and I really really resented that (laughs) I resented missing a year of my baby granddaughter's life and a year of my and of not seeing my daughter and my older granddaughters I just really resented the heck out of that and so I thought okay you're falling into a kind of you know, I think a mild depression, I think, like a lot of us, is suffering the blues, the pandemic blues, I call them, right? And so I, I resorted to the thing that always works for me when I have, when there's nothing else that works, when walking the dog and music and dancing and yoga and none of those things work for me, I learned something new. I decide that I'm going to learn to do something new. So this year, it was, you know, everybody was worried about food scarcity, and we finally had a place a piece of property big enough. So I told to my husband, said to my husband, I want to grow a potager garden. I want to grow vegetables. And I'd never grown vegetables before, only flowers in this tiny garden. And now we have, you know, a bigger property. And so he built me this beautiful, thing with raised beds and arbors and I thought oh no now I have to actually plant something (laughs) and get grow something but you know the process of doing that sitting down with all these new gardening books planning out my beds deciding whether to grow kale or or chard all these things and then learning I didn't know what the what the heck to do with chard as a cook or with kale and so I had to plant my seedlings I had to you know amend the soil I had to um plant the sow the seeds I had to and then I had to harvest it and cook it and all that was new brand new for me and it absorbed me in a way that was so beneficial to me because it took me out of my normal life it gave me something new and, and something to be excited about something to learn a lot of people when nothing else works if you learn something new that can do the trick so if you want to knit or learn Chinese, whatever it is, you should do it.
1: Well, you make a good point. I honestly believe people need three things in their life. One, they need something to do. Two, they need something to love. Mm-hmm. And three, they need something to look forward to. And if it's sim- as simple as I can't wait to see that break the ground or I can't wait to pick that and bring it in and chop it up and cook it, I mean... Those are things that we get energy from. Those are things that I I get a feeling of accomplishment. When I was closed down for six weeks and I decided I was going to paint. Uh-huh. I've never painted. And, and I had some, a son-in-law that gave me some good guidance. And it basically just said, just, you know, he showed me how to move the brush and the spatula. Okay, go do it. <laughs> And I really, you know, first I tried to make this piece of art. And then I tried to tell a story. It had the heart and the soul in it. And then I love abstract art. And then I just tried to make it abstract. And then, you know, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to accept it for what it is and let it be. And I'm going to put it in my closet. Nobody else is going (laughs) to see it. But I get great joy from looking at that. I was doing a Zoom call with them a couple of weeks ago on there. Is that the PCR in the chair? I'm like, oh, can't believe you noticed. <laughs> I had consciously said it there. But <laughs> but you're so right, doing something new, tapping into that inner, you know, I always say tap into that inner child because we all have one.
0: Right. Well, absolutely. And what is gardening but digging in the dirt like a kid in the sandbox?
1: It well. really <laughs> And you talk about that in your book. You talk about getting your hands dirty, you know?
0: Well, gardening is is one of the most, it's a meditation in many ways, right? And it, 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 it grounds you, literally. And it's really wonderful. I mean, I had the best time with that garden. It made such a difference. And I could leave the house and go to that garden by myself and just dig in the dirt like a kid. And it was great. It, it, it totally took me away from the nightmare that is 2020. It was, it was, it was a, a joy. And I, we also rescued a puppy and a puppy's a good idea too. Like you say, you need something to love, someone to love and nothing like a puppy to love you back.
1: Oh, I lost Miss Pickle during COVID-19 and Aww. and Mr. B, he just I got him after we lost Burger. I got him for Pickle. When we lost Pickle, he he, he was lost. And both of my boys were saying, "Mom, we're going to help you get another rescue dog." No, 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 no. And because it hurt, but sure. I finally did. And that got honestly for my husband I think that did more for him. He had purpose now. He's never worked from home. He's always traveled. And now he had a reason. I need to be home. I need to take Barnaby. You know, it gave him a purpose. So having something to love works every time.
0: Absolutely. You know, we I work from home and then I would travel a week, a month. I spent a week, a month, usually in New York because that's where publishing is. Right. And. And then all of a sudden I was at home all the time. And (laughs) uh, my husband was home all the time at first, too. And we were just trying to share our workspace. And that was really difficult, you know. But the puppies were great because between the three dogs and the cat and my, my parents, who are here as well, you know, we had to find a way to structure our lives so that we could both get our work done and take care of the animals and take care of my parents. And in a way, it was great because we ended up structuring our life just like it would be structured at work, in a workplace. And I think that's key to to your happiness, too, is to structure your life in a way that works, that makes your life work better and allows you to get things done. Because if you accomplishment is part of being happy. If you feel like you've gotten something done... Right, like you say, you need something to do, and that you're making progress, getting whatever it is you want done done. That, with that sense of accomplishment, comes a satisfaction.
1: We know it's interesting. A friend of mine saw, sent me a little post it, and it said, "No one will remember what you said. No one will remember how you acted. Everyone will remember how you made them feel."
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I was like, wow, because that's right. If I can, you know, in in my not best moments, I've said and done things that that I'm so glad nobody remembers. But (laughs) hopefully at the end, if I made them feel good, that's what they walk away with. And I know you talk about, I think you have a chapter in your book, something about call your mother or something. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, And to me, when I saw that, I was like, yep, she, because you call your mother and it makes you feel good.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, when, when you, when you feel the worst, another thing that can bring you out of it is to do something nice for someone else, whether it's your, whether you're volunteering, you know, or, you know, you're calling your mother or. You know, babysitting your grandchild if if you can do that in these days, or if you're just you know i i I can't see my grandchildren, so I just pack up fun things for them and mail them off to Switzerland, and it makes me feel good because I've done something for someone else, and that that's another easy little thing that makes you happy
1: well, you're exactly right, nothing feels better when somebody looks at you. And you, you look in their eyes and you see the gratitude and, you know, thank you for that. And you, it's like with the rescue dog, they think it's the, the biggest thing in the world. And how long did it take you? Five minutes. Right. And what did it cost you? Probably nothing, right. but five minutes. Right. No. Five so minutes. I think it's.
0: I think one more thing that I, I think is critical that we haven't really talked about. And that is forgiveness. I think we're all and I think certainly as a as a country, (laughs) we need to relearn forgiveness that I have this magnet on my refrigerator and it says, let go or get dragged. And I think you have to let go part of being happy is letting go of the bad things, the happiness, the bad feelings, the disappointments, the betrayals, even if you can let go of those, it frees you to be happy again and it. That's a question of forgiveness, forgiving yourself. For like you say, we all say these terrible things and, or do these things. We're like, oh, oh, I should never have done that. Oh. You have to forgive yourself and then forgive other people, too. And that really frees you up to lay the foundation for real happiness.
1: And that's hard. You know, and I think what I've heard several clients experience during the last few months is they're grieving they're, they're they're grieving for the loss of normalcy. What's normal? Can't go to the gym. Can't go to church. Can't go to work. You know, I've got this two bedroom apartment. Uh, one room is school. You know, the kitchen's the office. It's it's just that whole grieving for for what you've lost. And we've all had to change our life in some way. We've all had to give up some things.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I had a friend of mine say oh, well we're gonna have an on we're gonna have a a virtual cocktail party right and we're all going to get on zoom and and talk and we've done that and that's great but but the thought of actually having a real cocktail you know really having meeting friends for dinner it's enough to bring me to tears now <laughs> because it-, it just sounds so wonderful and something that you didn't appreciate necessarily at the time you could do it but now I think we have to find other ways and other ways to forgive ourselves and to forgive others and to get past this grief, to feel it and then get past it and find other ways to connect with people because we don't have the ways we used to have. We've, some of us have lost jobs. I think most of us have lost income. We've lost um, friendships, especially the ones that are hard to maintain, you know, in this sort of online environment, we've lost faith often. To, and, and losing faith is, is a tough one. And I have a friend who's a pastor, and she, she says it's very hard on her parishioners not to be able to go to church. And so they do all these virtual virtual you know um, services, but it's not the same. And it's really hard for people. So to hold on to faith and kindness and forgiveness, especially now, it's really a challenge. But it, it is critical to to being happy.
1: Well, you know, what I associate happiness with is being fair, carefree. And that's really hard. To, and I don't think people want to be, you know, I do care. I think people don't want to be carefree. But I think that we have to have a certain amount of time every day where it is okay. You know, it's okay to be carefree, to just... Do a little dance if that gives me joy. Stand on my head if you're if you're into yoga. Do a headstand. But whatever it is, you know, you gotta take time to be happy.
0: Absolutely. I'm I'm on my very worst days. I I don't leave the house much except like go to the grocery store and the pharmacy, right? The things I have to do. I get in the car. And I just turn up the music really loud and drive down these beautiful country roads here in New England, especially in the fall. And that makes me happy. And it's not doing anything for anybody but me. And I don't have to think about anything else but the beautiful foliage and the beetles and, and, the, and the road ahead of me. And it's, it's a, a mini break. It's a break that does my mind and my body and my soul good.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because just hearing you say that, I spent 20 years in Connecticut, in Brookfield, Connecticut, and never forget uh, the, the fall, you know, the most beautiful, just hearing you talk about that, I had this flashback. And I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, because the colors, we don't have trees like that in Texas. We don't have the reds, the golds, the yellows, the leaves. Now, we also don't have the ice and snow, (laughs) for which I'm grateful. Right. But just hearing you say that, I was just, that made me happy. So I think, you know, taking, being able to take the time and listen, and, and allow yourself. Oh yeah! Oh, I remember. I remember the last fall that I was in Connecticut, and it was so vibrant, and it was so, you know, to remember the the good that's associated with it. Because we're, this is a true fact. Every day we have three times more positive events happen to us than negative. But what do we remember? The brain holds on to the negative. And we've got to work at that. We've got to say, okay, big deal. So that lady cut you off. She didn't let you go first, you know. Um, Instead of thinking about that, think about that lady that held the door for you. How kind was that? And, And this is what I told my kids when they were growing up. You always find what you're looking for. So empower you. I'd start looking for the good instead of the bad.
0: That's absolutely true. And if if you need reminding, I spent an afternoon because, as I said, I I decided I would write a novel set in Europe and and populate it with all my favorite people as a way of, of sort of coping with this longing I have to see my family and to travel again. And I did a vision board. And I put pictures of the family, several generations of women in my family. And I put pictures of Alsace, which is where our forebears are from. I put all these pictures and, and postcards and maps. And it just made me so happy. It was the best afternoon I've had in a long time. And my mother, who is 85 and really hates not being able to leave the house, she hates it and not seeing her great-grandchildren. She comes in every day and looks at that vision board because it makes her happy.
1: Oh, what a great gift to be able to give somebody else happiness. That would make me happy. To know that I could give her that, that's that's a great story. And it sounds like she is in a very well cared for, although she wants out. She sounds <laughs> like she's very well cared for. That's for sure. Well, you know.
0: She wants out, like all of us. She definitely wants out. But it's interesting because I did that vision board to make me happy and the byproduct was it made mom happy too and i think that's a an important lesson make ourselves happy and that happiness is contagious
1: oh it absolutely is and that's why you know there's certain people that we don't want to be around in our life and you know we've got about three minutes left in the show and one of the chapters in your book was happier in good times because it is easy when times are good and everything's rolling my way, you know, uh, it's easy. And when I'm in those happy times, I'll say something. Well, be, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you ask for because you think you want bigger things. Um, but I was so pleased. Is there anything from that chapter that are you, from from that content that you'd like to leave our writers with?
0: Yes, I would, because, you know. Um, It's a very difficult time in publishing, as with all retail businesses, and and with all business, right? Most businesses are suffering now, and so nobody knows what to write. Nobody knows what can work, and that's always true, but it's certainly true now. So I tell my writers, my clients, look, now's the time to write what you always wanted to write. Now's the time to go big, go for broke, write that story you never thought you'd write, you'd never had the time to write, you never thought you could write. Do it now. Write something spectacular that you really care about. Don't think about the marketplace. Don't think about anything because nobody knows what works now anyway. So you may as well write something that you've always longed to write.
1: Well, those are great words to end on. They really are. I know you've got a book coming out in 2021. What's the name of that book?
0: It's called The Hiding Place. It's the third book in the series. And it's, you know, Mercy Carr and Elvis. And they're working on a cold case. And it's sort of a mini homage to Strangers on the Train. So it's fun. And then late, late next week, Blind Search will be out in paperback for only seven ninety nine.
1: And where can people get that?
0: Anywhere fine books are sold. Onlinebookshop.org or, you know, Amazon or, or in your local independent bookstore. They're all anywhere books are sold. You can find them.
1: So all they have to do is Google Blind Search. Paula Munier and that's M-U-N-I-E-R and they'll pull you right up. Absolutely. Well I you know Paula it's been such a joy to have you on this show because it's helped me kind of get wrap my head around are you going to write that second book? (laughs) Well I know I've got I know I've got some homework to do (laughs) before I go there but you know Anything that I can get from the wooden word, and I told you, I have to hold the book in my hand. And happier every day sits on my desk, and <laughs> I intend—I intend for it to be there for a very long time. Thank you so much for being my guest. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you.
0: On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify,